Okay, everybody, welcome to Don't Tell Baba, our conversational podcast with Middle Eastern flair. I'm Shireen. And I am Noor. Or Nora. If you can't pronounce Noor, just call her Nora. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in our, in our last episode, we spoke a lot about growing up in the United Arab Emirates and what it was like and just a couple of fun facts and answered some questions. Today, we're going to talk about books that changed us, which is a little bit of a departure from the Middle Eastern flair that we it advertised. Is a bit of a, it is a bit of a departure, but I think that these books partly shaped us because of the very specific way that we connected to them as Middle Eastern women. Yeah. And you know what? It also books were kind of our refuge from the world outside. Mm -hmm. I think Nuda and I both had the same issue. And for Nuda, it like poured a little bit into university mm -hmm. where there was kind of this desire to cut yourself off from everything Arab because mm -hmm. it was suffocating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt a little guilty in, in the last episode saying that I don't know much about what happens in Iraq. I don't but I didn't think, know much about. I don't think you should feel guilty. But I don't think um, I. I didn't know what was happening there when I lived in Abu Dhabi either. That's true. Nobody told me. No, they. We were pretty sheltered. Um, we were incredibly sheltered. But I think so. that. But I think that we were very aware that things were dark. Yeah, I mean. I was aware of the war. Um, yeah. I I remember the day Saddam Hussein got killed. Um, does that image ever flash in your mind randomly when you're trying to fall asleep? Uh, yeah. You know what? The day Saddam Hussein was captured, I was in sixth grade and I was on the bus. And people were spreading it amongst um, amongst themselves on the bus between the kids. Yeah. Which is such a dark thing for kids to talk about. That yes. Saddam Hussein got killed. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember thinking, oh, good. Now the war will be over. And that is really just coming from like a very naive sixth grade mind. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but honestly, on this podcast, I want to be really upfront about the things I do and do not know, even if it's about something as personal as culture. I think that's the only way to do it. Because our culture is also informed by the UAE. So the Iraqi culture I have I don't think is the Iraqi culture that I would have had if no. I grew up in Baghdad. No, no, absolutely not. It was it was a very different lens. Um, yeah, you kind so. of we kind of viewed our own cultures through the lens of how they were viewed by the remainder of the Middle East. Yeah, so um, we don't we don't mean ill by it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just trying to we're just trying to make our own way in this world and it's tough and we can't know everything and sometimes it's better for us not to know everything because it's miserable. Okay. Pick between these two superpowers. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Superpower number 1 is eternal inner peace. Mhm. Mm Undisruptible inner peace. Mhm. Mm Option number two is infinite knowledge. Oh, the inner peace. Are you kidding me? Really? Dude, wanting infinite knowledge is the plot of Faust. <laughs> Do you know what happened to Faust? I got like 30 pages in and then I fell asleep for the first time in months. So no. Okay. Well, it didn't go well. <laughs> Wait, wasn't there a demon or something? 
Ah, uh, yeah, Mephistopheles. I'm <laughs> obsessed with him. Actually, let me give you a good translation of Faust because he's a very Richard III-esque character. Okay. I think you would like him. He's hilarious. It's actually a hysterical play. It turns into like a demon man, like buddy road trip situation. It's the mess. Oh, that's sick. I love a demon yeah. man buddy situation. Yeah, Faust um, exchanges his like, so he kind of wants infinite wisdom but then he decides that he'll just be young instead so that he can like get with women what um i know like i'm like okay i'm sorry this devil is willing to give you infinite wisdom but you're just like i want to be hot though that's so so selfish that's so selfish and he and so they end up just like fucking around and actually one of the climaxes of the play for me is a scene where faust is like this is all your fault and mephistopheles is like (laughs) dude i didn't for i didn't force you to do this you're the one who made a deal with the devil and also you were like i want to be hot oh my god okay fine fine i just send me all the good translations of things i have to read i will read them i swear um but no, Faust sounds great. I think I would go with the infinite knowledge. But isn't wouldn't that make you miserable? Yes. You want to be miserable? No. Okay. But I suspect that I will be no more miserable than I am or have been. Yeah, we already know too much. Right? So I just mm-hmm. want to know all of it. Just Just have all the information in the world. And then maybe I could, like, piece something together that does something. All right. That's fair. You could make a difference. I just want to chill for once in my life. God knows I've (laughs) been incapable of doing that since 1992. (laughs) Oh, my God. Chill. I know. Okay. I know. We have five books each. And I think we're in a – and then we have have a bonus book that we both want to talk about. Don't we have two bonus books? Um, Well – Yes, yeah. because one we have two bonus books. <laughs> yeah. So, which is which is a little bit of a lot, but like we love reading so much. Like mm-hmm. we, as we said in the first episode, that's kind of what brought us together was mm-hmm. Lord of the Flies, actually, mm-hmm. um, which is one of your books. So why don't you start and tell me about a book that changed you? Just tell me the story. Like how did you get to it? Okay, I actually want to start kind of chronologically. So I'm going to start with what I remember of early childhood, ages 6 through 10. Okay. I guess that's mid-childhood. Yeah. 6 through 10. Um, There is an author named Enid Blyton who had collections of short stories. And these collections of short stories were about stuff like fairies and goblins and gnomes and dwarves and magical lands and dragons and princesses. And when I read those books and then went outdoors, I felt like every rock and patch of grass was magical. Because I was That's beautiful. I was constantly looking for those fairies. I would chase yeah. I would chase butterflies in the hopes that there was a small magical creature riding on its back. It was it gave me the ability to look around at the world around me and see a potential in it if only I could suspend disbelief long enough. That's beautiful. I actually read a lot of Enid Blyton 
as well. I think they were really popular or like you could find them at like book corner. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you know she wrote 762 books? <laughs> How many books did she? No way. No. Way. That's what Wikipedia says. She wrote 762 books. She was like, she was, that's, that's bananas behavior. That's incredible. Imagine sitting at your desk for hours upon hours a day, just imagining what a tiny woman with wings might do when confronted with a blade of grass. Just, um, I wish that were me. I know. So, <laughs> um, so beautiful. Yeah, is there a specific, like, do you remember the when you got your first Enid Blyton? No, I don't. Do you I remember don't. if you had a favorite one? Do you remember the titles? Not at all, but it was the it was the pink one, is what I can tell you for sure. You know, I remember those books were such a child friendly size, and they were hardcover, but like not super hard. It was almost like a softish, more cardboardy type of hardcover. Yep. But you always felt so adult reading them because, like, this is like a novel right. that you're holding. Yes, and they were big for child hands, so it felt like you were carrying yeah. around this tome. Yeah, so it it was like it was it's like such a child friendly size. Mm-hmm. It like adds to the experience. Yes, with it being a hardcover, not like a super fancy, expensive, like leather bound whatever. But you know, hardcover enough for you as a child to be like, I am grown up now that I read this. Exactly. Yes, and that's also part of the experience of like doing that. It's a step up from paperback. It's a step up from just straight up picture books. So. When my parents left the UAE, um, they had to give away quite a lot of stuff because of downsizing and whatever. Um, A lot. Every single Enid Blyton book is long gone. And I'm very sad about it. Yeah, the same thing happened when my parents left the UAE as well. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? One day you're going to be at like a garage sale because you (gasps) like to frequent them and you're going to see a box of Enid Blyton and you're going to buy them. Yeah, but not before crying all over the owner of the home. (laughs) Yeah, and then they're going to be like, well, now you have to buy them because you just cried on my merchandise. Oh, my God. I cried on so much merchandise this summer as I was making my way to the garage sales to pick up uh, furniture. I got some roller skates, some vintage lamps. People, go to your garage sales and thrift shops. Like, there is so much cool, unique stuff. Just go there first, and then if you're still looking, go to a big box store, right? I agree with you. I mean, I don't even know how you kept your shit together in that Winnie the Pooh house. I did, did you it. cry? Yeah. Okay. So did she, That though. makes sense. Oh, I, like, can't imagine having to give away, like, your beloved Winnie the Pooh merchandise. So I know. Something about it, like, the fact that it's also Winnie the Pooh makes it even more sensitive. I told you that she gave me a gift, right? She did? What did she give you? Okay, so um, I sent Mike back for the prints that I didn't buy the first time. Um, Yeah. And she messaged me on Facebook and was like, hey, I also have these Disney stuffed um, animals, but in the style of classic poo. Oh, I love love classic poo. Me too. Me too. And she was like, do you want them? And I was like, yes, yes, very badly, but I honestly can't afford them. So no, thank you. And then Mike comes home and he has the prints under one arm and a bag of stuffed animals in the other. That's so nice. Yeah. 
And I messaged her and I was like, oh, my God, you could have like you could have sold those for good money. And she was like, nah, I knew they'd be significantly more loved with you. Oh, my God. That's such Winnie the Pooh energy. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's literally like Winnie the Pooh energy. She's embodying the hundred acre wood vibes. One hundred percent. It was it was beautiful. Um, but yeah, no, Enid Blyton was crucially important to my development. That's I like that. I was also reading them. I I understand. Your turn. I also chose one from when I was a really little kid because you did, and I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I had a life before my twenties. Oh yeah. Um, Honestly, in my mind, I'm like, did I have a life before 26? Because this is the first <laughs> time I feel like, right? Anyway, which is the age I am now. Yeah. Um, so this the book I chose is called The Story of the Tooth Fairy. And I don't know the author because it was just like a little golden book. Oh, my God. Um, so cute. And it came it came with like this little stuffed tooth and the tooth had like a pocket on the front where you could put your teeth and then put that under your pillow. So my parents did do the tooth fairy thing for me, which is like decidedly not Arab, but I was also like reading enough and into like fairies and stuff enough that they were like, okay, we will leave one that hum under her, you know, pillow. My parents did it too. And that fund contributed to the down payment. Oh my god! I I I'm honestly like impressed at your ability to save. To be honest, my dad used to be like, "Give me your idea," and he put them into premium bonds. Yeah. Allegedly, allegedly, I'm supposed to get money from those bonds this year, so we shall see. <gasps> Wait, no way, for real? <laughs> yeah, I didn't make anything. It's just my idea money. <laughs> no, dude, that's really sick. I hope that it's like I hope that it's paid off. Yeah, I have no idea. So I'm, I just signed something this past weekend and I was like, is this the freaking bonds? Because I have never <laughs> seen my idea since. Anyway. Um, oh my God. The story of the tooth fairy, I loved it because it was in these painted in like these beautiful pastels and all watercolors. It's like mm-hmm. pinks bleeding into yellows, bleeding mm-hmm. into lavenders. And that is like my adult aesthetic. It wasn't my aesthetic as I was growing up. Yeah, but that's like my adult aesthetic. It was so dreamy. Like the fairies wore these like flower petal dresses and had these like golden curls. And you're just like, as a child, you're like, I want to live in this book because it seems so peaceful to like lounge on a cloud, you know, and everything's like sparkling and and it's constantly like, it's constantly like dawn. Those are the colors. Okay. But like, Given the opportunity to lounge on a cloud, he would mm-hmm. jump on that, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, if clouds, I mean, one of the worst things about being a child is finding out that clouds are just like vapor. Wasn't that devastating? It's it's bullshit. Like I can <laughs> I can point out like multiple times in my life where I'm like, if I didn't know that, I would be happier. That's fascinating. We should do an episode on that. Gone all the ways that magic was sucked out of my life from education, like just by education. Yeah. I'm a teacher. I think that it's a very important topic to discuss. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, so actually, though, it's important. It's worth pointing out that, like, not every child is as, like, dreamy as us and, like, disconnected from reality as we were. No, absolutely. That's worth pointing out. But it's also yeah. worth pointing out that the earlier you start, the more access you give people to dreams. 
It's true. And I, f- I want to say we were like exceptionally dreamy compared to other kids our age yeah. in the UAE. Yes. But I also want to point out that the the ability to take that time to be so dreamy and disconnected is also a privilege. We it's a privilege. We were privileged in that our parents gave us books. Exactly. And the space to read them and the space to dream. I never felt like I was in danger some kids can't be dreamy because they can't disconnect from a reality that they are constantly needing to control and assess. Yeah. We and I will say, yeah, and I will say that also, um, I never felt like I was, I was never made to feel like I was wasting time by reading. Exactly. Me neither. I, it was encouraging. I think our parents, both our parents valued what they believed reading would do to us. And I think it did exactly what they thought. It did exactly what they thought. But for the most part, this is not a standard part of growing up Arab, from what I understand. No, no, that's true. Uh, That's very, very, very true. Um, We were big, big readers. We had one other friend who I recall who was a very big reader. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of it. Um, Everybody else at our school often teased us for wasting time reading. Yeah, and you know, people read as necessary. Like if you were someone who did care about your grades, maybe you would read like Lord of the Flies or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but you yeah. you like it. That's right. It was a chore. It was, I have to do this many pages a day. Alternatively, they would find me at lunch and be like, give me all the answers to our Henry Fourth homework. Yep. And I would be like, can you like use SparkNotes is available online. We had internet access. I was like, can you cheat like yeah. online on your own time? Yeah. Yeah. But um, we did have SparkNotes. In fact, SparkNotes was. I remember sometimes when we were doing the multiple choice questions, because those were our English tests, multiple yep. choice questions, not essays, mm-hmm. multiple nope. choice. Right. Um But I remember I would like see questions and be like, oh, like the kids who read the spark notes won't know the answer to this one because I read the book and I read the spark notes. And if there was a movie, I watched that, too, so that I could. Yeah. So that I could kind of then diagram what information was contained where and what was missed. Yeah. And actually, to just to be clear, this was not studying for us. This was just kind of how Nude and I enjoyed books together and separately. Yeah, it was just having fun. We just went all out. Yeah, we were just literally having fun. For SparkNotes, actually, we were given SparkNotes explicitly once, like the SparkNotes version of a book, and that was Richard III. I still have it. We could. I still have mine. Let's post the Um, picture. Yeah, so Richard III, they gave us the No Fear Shakespeare. And as someone who is now a self-proclaimed Shakespearean, mm-hmm. I th- I think I really like the No Fear Shakespeare's. I think when people are trying to get into Shakespeare, it's mm-hmm. intimidating. It's scary. Honestly, you wanting to read Measure for Measure, if it freaks you out that much, buy the No Fear Shakespeare version. Because if you get stuck on anything, it's as simple as looking to the left, right? Um, honestly, I actually think that I want to listen to Shakespeare in audiobook form. Actually, that also helps because it's meant to be seen and heard and not read. Exactly. So um, so I, I would also encourage that. There are apps out there that will show you the text as you listen. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So um, 
So we were explicitly given the SparkNotes version. The only bad thing about it was that we read the literal English translation. We didn't read the old English. Do you no, remember that? I do. It was really upsetting. It was really bad because the point of SparkNotes is to have it as a guide. Yes. And then as you're reading the old English, you will pick up on the phrases and whatever. You'll get good at it. It's like learning any other language. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so No, that was that was an upsetting. Henry the Fourth, Part One. We were not given a Sparknotes version. We were given an Oxford Press version, I believe, which I still also own. Me too. Um, but like we had no practice in reading Shakespeare. Exactly. But Shushu and I read both sides of the page, so we were fine. We were fine, but there was still that like struggle of reading the opening of Henry the Fourth, and not having the crutch of Sparknotes. You're right. It was, you're it was right. so it was fast. Challenging. Yeah. It was too fast. They were taking us from Richard III, which I will say is like a play that's relatively easy to understand. He wants yeah. to kill everybody because he wants the crown, mm-hmm. to suddenly being like, why don't we talk about Falstaff's wit? And I'm like, you have not prepared us to discuss wit. Uh, What is wit? Exactly. So it, it was a problem, but um, but yeah, we were given Spark Notes once. I don't know why they decided not to do Spark Notes for Henry the Fourth, Part One. Maybe someone put their foot down. Maybe it was our English teacher. Maybe, or maybe this was the cheaper book. Yeah, an Oxford Press one's definitely cheaper. <laughs> Might be that. I, I I did like the cover a lot more though. It had that like cool painting of Falstaff on it. I like that cover too. I do the- like that cover. One second. Anyways, um, so yours was the story of the Tooth Fairy, and mine was Enid Blyton's Enid, entire Enid Blyton's, yeah, her in 762 books, all of them. Terrifying number. Yeah. So what's your, what's your other one? So my next one, still going chronologically, is called Love's Choices, and it was written by Penny Jordan. Oh my god, the mystery contraband romance novel. Do you hear it? Do I? Oh my god, I hear it. This novel was passed around like contraband amongst the girls on the playground. Yes, it was. Um, Now, I I must say, a heavy disclaimer, there is um, power play themes as well as non-consent themes, so this may be triggering. It is most certainly not a woke um, romance novel, uh, but but it gets the job done, if you know what I mean. I want to – I have a <laughs> I have a comment about romance novels, actually. They um, – you should check the date of publication if you are interested in reading because there are um, some things that are unacceptable now. Yes. I would, I, I'm fine reading things like from 2011, even from as far back as 2009. But if you want to go really far back, and when was this published? Does it say on the inside? Yeah, 1984. 1984. I would definitely um, steer clear if you know that you're going to be uncomfortable with a um, – lack of consent yeah and yeah so so with romance novels in the genre there have been like huge strides and honestly it's a very leaps and bounds and now as it stands is a very feminist friendly space that's really heavy on the consent really heavy yes unless you're reading 
unless you're seeking out very taboo subsections of romance. But if I want to say romance as a whole, I would say that it has improved. So this novel is a little problematic, but it was still, it still made an impact. It still made some waves on the playground. It made waves on the playground and more than making waves on the playground, um, it made waves within me, literal waves Hmm. within me. Oh Um, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell Baba. Don't tell Baba. (laughs) Um, No, this book shaped my sexuality entirely. And Mm. leaning or going back to this being problematic, I'll be very frank. It's probably quite problematic. Um, My kink is shaped by this book. My fetish is shaped by this book. I think we'll get into kink and fetish in like later episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was very, very formative in terms of discovering my own sexuality and what got me off. Um, Yeah, great, great book. (laughs) I mean, you know, and it's funny because it's funny how like these things make an impact. Like I certainly think romance novels have the capacity to make an impact in the way that other books maybe don't um, because they're so personal to people. Like I was told a while ago, like people don't usually give away their romance novels. And I was like, that's interesting. And I think it's because like when you love one, you hang on to it. You still have this one, which Mm -hmm. speaks to their point. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it's, um, it's so easy to see why you and I are so different in some respects because you were reading this. I was still nose deep in the historicals. Yes. Um, Meanwhile, this is about a woman being kidnapped from a convent um, by a dark and handsome stranger as revenge because his sister was murdered by the girl's father. It's very convoluted. Yeah, this almost sounds like measure for measure fan fiction. (laughs) Yo, imagine. I'm going to reread it, you know. I actually um, have a good piece of measure for measure fan fiction that I really enjoy because like I'm I'm fine saying that I don't care. Um, Wait, do you not write measure for measure fan fiction? I've never written any Shakespeare fan fiction because <gasps> um there's that fear, but for for people who care, the fan fiction I'm talking about, which I actually have bookmarked because I read it every so often, is called The Dance of the Seven Veils, and you can find it on Archive of Our Own. It's by a user called Market, Market Chippy. So oh, that's sick. It's really good. It's pretty short. It's just like a one-shot, but she, she really understands the characters, which I enjoy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I, I love that the mystery contraband novel lives. It lives. It lives. There are pages falling out of it. Um, it's really torn up. It looks well-loved. I revisit it sometimes. Um, do you know, do you remember what people's particular reactions were to reading this novel? Because you lent it out quite a bit. Honestly, I don't. I remember reading it because I was probably the first person you gave it to because you knew I wouldn't squeal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I wouldn't be like, oh, my God, Nude gave me this book because I was already secretly reading romance and hiding it on the shelf in my cupboard. It didn't matter. Yeah. Um, So I, I honestly don't remember what I thought about it, but I'm pretty sure even if I didn't like it, I would have kept reading it out of morbid fascination. I bet. Um, I bet. Because here's the thing. It's. I don't remember it being gratuitous in its descriptions. It was actually mm. written. I think it was written fairly erotically. Yeah. 
it turned me on. Yeah, and I think that was not very surprising to me at the time you lent it to me because I already had some idea of like where your tastes were on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I I can't blame you. What gave me away? Was it the um, leather? Um, no, you were just very frank with me all the time. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, you were very frank with me all the time. And it's like... And we were a very much a like no judgment zone when it was just me and you. There was zero judgment. That's very true. That's very it, like true. I don't think there was ever a time where I was like, "Hey, this is wrong and you're disgusting." I was just like, "Okay, dude. Like, as long as you're safe and yeah, no, that's not literally, literally, never ever made me feel bad or weird, which is why I came to you with so much of this stuff." Exactly. Like you came to me with everything and that was fine. And who am I to judge when I, to this day, break out in a cold sweat when I see a man in Regency wear? Like, what am I, like, who am I to you speak? You can't be blamed. You cannot. No, I can't be blamed. Yeah. So um, you you read what you like. I like that the mystery contraband novel lives. I like that we finally have a name for it. Right. Um, you know, in my, in my, um, in my query letter to publishers when I was handing out my novel, yep. uh, I talked about the mystery contraband novel. Did you actually? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, you don't understand what romance was to a Middle Eastern child. Like, I'm, like I was like, there was a mystery contraband novel passed amongst us, but it's <laughs> secret, it's forbidden. Oh but that's God. where we learned. Oh, how exciting. So, yeah, so the mystery romance novel really, it really... I used it. it. Finally, it finally made itself known to me. It's it was good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I have another one from when I was in sixth grade, and this was before I moved to Shuifat. So we read a book called Kinsuki's Kingdom, and that's a book by Michael Morpurgo. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. Um, this is a children's book, but it is like a like a chapter book, as I used to call them when I was a little girl. What was a um, chapter book? Um, that's just the difference between between like a book with no chapters, like a picture book, mm-hmm. and an actual. It's the childlike way of saying novel because I didn't have that vocabulary oh to say God. novel. That's so sweet. So, um, Kintsugi's Kingdom is about this like young um, character who is in a shipwreck, and they wash up um, on an island. And find that it's being inhabited by a Japanese man named Kensuki. Oh. And this man cares for him and starts to give him kind of like insight into his past and like the wars he's been in and the family that he left behind. Um, and the book ends really with um, the child who has been washed up on this island being rescued. Like his parents find him, so they all reunite. Yeah. Um, and Kensuki is left behind on the island. And he, because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to leave. This is his life, you know? Um, And I I remember, I remember certain scenes from it. One scene was like Kintsuki's hut or like living area or, or like whatever you want to call it had this like, um, like these like woven mats, like everything was woven out of like fronds and stuff. And he used to like. He used to like um, cook fish for this child character, and you know he would go fishing, like spearing fish out of the ocean, mm-hmm. and um, and also I remember one scene in particular, which is a scene where Kensuki wakes him up at like 
the crack of dawn because the turtles had hatched. And what Kensuke does with this child is make sure that all of the turtles are being guided to the ocean without being bothered by any gulls. Oh my god, that's gorgeous. But the way this book was written was like, it was this kind of like beautiful, lyrical kind of hushed writing. Yeah. And as a child, I was like, this is nuts that someone is writing for me like this. I'm a child. And when you're in the Middle East, you are made to feel like a child for most of your life. Very, very much so. So, but I was being written for, like this author was like, you're an adult though. You're a little adult. So I'm going to use these metaphors and I'm going to use this kind of writing and all of this stuff. And so I was just really shaken by it. We That year in sixth grade, we also read um, Dakota of the White Flats. And that was like a really fun book. It's a very funny book. I don't know if you've read. I have not. Um, that or like um, the author also wrote like Meteorite Spoon no. um, and Casper and the Glitter. No. Um, so these were very like fun books. They were all written by Philip Ridley. Nice. And so Dakota of the White Flats was very fun. He writes this like really like um, this really like fun psychedelic type fantasy. Oh, like yeah, it was really cool. And so when we moved to Kensuke's Kingdom, which is decidedly not, yeah. um, people found it really boring. Like the kids wouldn't stop complaining. But I was like, this is the best thing I've ever read because Philip Ridley, even though I was super into it because it was entertaining, it was a yeah. fast read. It, it it was for children. That kind of I love his books even to this day. Like I love like Casper and the Glitter, and I still love Dakota of the White Flats. But it's also like explicitly a children's book. Kintsuki's Kingdom felt like someone was writing to me on the level that I was wondering if I was at, but didn't know because no one was validating that. That's incredible. Um, yeah, and I'm so, I'm gonna need to get my hands on all of these. I I need. I need to see this magic. Um, no, but that's really, really gorgeous. I didn't read any of those things. We had, because I was in Shoy Fat, we had anthology readers. Um, oh, my God. Honestly, a lot of my reading, because Book Corner, I read everything at Book Corner in a year. I was done, right? And then we mm-hmm. didn't have many new bookstores. Mostly, I would buy books when my family traveled to Canada for vacations, or, yeah, that's usually how it happened. Exactly. Or family would bring books back to me from um, a- anywhere. We live all over the world. So people would bring me books. People would send me books. Um, that's how I got most of them. Mm-hmm. I, and like these never made it into my hands. But we didn't have that kind of culture of what are the kids reading. Mm-hmm. It just it, we, it wasn't there. So either way. I will catch up and I will read Kinsuki's Kingdom and Casper's Glitter and all the rest. And Yeah, I think you would really like Philip Ridley because he's definitely out there. Like his ideas are just like he's writing like banana stories. But when you're a kid, you're like, this is so fun. Like they're so easy and fast to read. Kinsuki's Kingdom, actually, I ended up giving to my mom because I was like, I just love this. And I'm really glad that she read it, even though she was like in her 40s and I'm like some wisp of a child being like, read this book. But she loved it. And we actually talk about it to this day. We're like, dude, Kintsuki's Kingdom like changed our life. And um, we would talk about it at night, like in her bed. And for a child who's like, so books are the companion to the lonely and melancholic child, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. yes. Um, 
And as a child who was both lonely and melancholic, that was that was all I needed, someone to like pour that into. Later, as I grew up, I had you because you and I would talk about books forever. Constantly. And it became less lonely. But when, you, when you're when you young and it's not like you and I had each other, there is a loneliness about loving books v- when you're young. Very, very, very much so. Yeah. So tell me, tell me yours. All right. Um, I did want to say, though, that my mom also read books that I gave her as a child. Um, oh, I love that they did that for us. Yeah, it was... Uh, that's that's moms, dude. Yeah, that's that's good moms. Okay, so um, my next three started to occur at around the same time. I'm mm. going to start with William Golding's Lord of the Flies, our grade <sighs> ten novel. We yeah, and I'm holding this copy. Do you hear it? Yes. Is it the copy with the red cover? Yes, it is. Oh my god. I know the cover exactly because yep. that was the cover that we were given. Yeah, and it says on the front, William Golding, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Lord of the Flies, Educational Edition. And that's it. Lord of the Flies won the Nobel Prize for Literature? Yeah. What in the hell? Okay. I'm not no. going to talk about whether or not I feel like it deserves it, but carry on. On the inside cover, there mm. is... A coffee stain um, oh, from my second year in university when I reread it. Aww. Um, and at the top left corner of the inner page of the front cover, it says Nood, last name, 10SB. My class. Oh my section. God. Yes. I was in Tennessee. You yeah. and I were in the same English class, though. How come? I don't know. I think that you asked to be like in that class. You know what? I think I think so because we definitely 100% have the same English teacher, obviously. But also we um, were 100% in the same class for English. We were. And I almost, yeah, honestly, I feel like I probably was like, nope, got to go to this class. I'll learn better. And at school, they actually didn't argue with me that much because no. I, the comment I used to get with, you talk so much, which is just how they would insult me for trying to make my point. Yeah. And then they'd just be like, all right, fine, because you have... Uh, been so annoying you'll get what you want when in fact you had made a really good point and what were they going to do exactly so there you go um so i'm going through this and this was a school text which should be highlighted and filled with notes but that's not my style um so i just ended up highlighting some sentences that i liked and here's one of them here invisible yet strong was the taboo of the old life. Oh, my God. Page we were not ready for this novel. We were, we were not. Um, like, I mean, intellectually, we were not ready for this novel. Right. And that's kind of why this novel is on this list. It's because it articulated something that I had been suspicious of. And what which, is that? Which is the question of whether we can even ask about the nature of human beings. I didn't know we could. Mm, Yeah, I found that in Shakespeare, that curiosity about human nature. Yes, yes. I was always curious, but I never realized before this book that I could question it, that I could have an opinion on whether or not we were inherently good or evil. 
I never thought to stop and be like, is this part of our build of our makeup? Um, and then mm -hmm. this book made me start questioning it. And honestly, I, I fell into a bit of a depression um, while we were studying this. It's a tough book. It's a heavy book. Yeah, it messed me. It messed me up a little. And I want to just remind um, listeners here: when we were in grade ten, we were um, fourteen, going on fifteen. Mm. Right. Yeah. And then grades uh, eleven was fifteen, going on sixteen, and grade twelve was sixteen, going on seventeen. Yes. So we were young, like we were fourteen years old when we read this book. It was. It was. And I know that people. Like when this is taught in schools, it's still it's still taught fairly young. But I think that over here they have a much better foundation for this to lie on. Yeah, we didn't have anything like mm -hmm. genuinely nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and we were actually not taught it um, as well as I would have liked, though. And there because there are a lot of religious themes and a lot of religious imagery in Lord of the Flies yeah. that actually our English teacher was explicitly told not to discuss with us. Yes. Because it was like forbidden or head on. Yes. So um, she privately told us about Simon being like a Jesus figure. Yes. You remember that? I do remember that. I remember it very well. And so that was how I learned how to pick out religious language and religious imagery and right. metaphor and whatever. Right, exactly. So this book shaped me intellectually and philosophically, I want to say. Mm. So do you think humans are inherently good or evil? Flawed. Yeah, I think I think black and white it's it, it's too I, I don't know Golding I think was also trying to say he was trying to be in a gray area but we were taught otherwise which I didn't like I don't think he was trying to be in a gray area Do you think he explicitly thought that everybody was evil like yeah. inherently Yes But not all of the characters were inherently evil no. Simon wasn't Pinky no. wasn't No but that wasn't the point The point was that no matter what we do or how we reshape or rebuild we will not have an effective system because the issue is not with the systems. The issue is with us inherently. Mm. We cannot well, it, ourselves. Yeah. So the reason I didn't like this book is because I think humans are inherently good. <laughs> so when William Golding was showing up being like, they're evil, I was like, shut up, William Golding. But I do want to give props to this book for really ripping you out of the, the book at the end. Because suddenly at the end of the book, mm -hmm. you are looking through the eyes of an adult, seeing yeah. these dirty children with an island on fire, and it yeah. looks like they've been playing. Yeah. It looks like they've been playing like war, but yeah. like as children, like Jack is, Jack's face is covered in mud, like yeah. a baby, like a child. And that that like rips you out of all of the drama that had been happening before, like nothing else. Here, here it is. Um I want to pick a good line. The officer turns back to Ralph. We'll take you off. How many of you are there? Ralph shook his head. The officer looked past him to the group of painted boys. Who's boss here? I am, said Ralph loudly. A little boy who wore the remains of an extraordinary black cap on his red hair and who carried the remains of a pair of spectacles at his waist started oh. forward, then changed his mind and stood still. Like, 
just that messes you up. It really did. This book messed their children. It messed children. Up. Yes, yes. It I messed mean, me up. They are actual children. Mm-hmm. I also want to say rest in peace, Piggy. But I also love all of the Lord of the Flies memes that I see online. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> like I, I remember the, I remember this one that actually circulated amongst us while we were reading Lord of the Flies, which was like my conch brings all the boys to the yard. <laughs> but then Piggy's like, "Where are the, where are the adults?" But <laughs> Piggy, I loved Piggy because I would be uh, Piggy. I'd be like, "We need to wait for the adults," and these kids are like, ra- like waging warfare. Um. Rest in peace, Piggy. Rest in peace, Jack. There's nothing more devastating than Ralph having Piggy spectacles on him. I know. I know. Because Ralph was the only... Granted, Ralph was the dick who was like, yo, what did they call you when you were at school? Because we won't repeat it. And Piggy's like, oh, it's Piggy. And everyone's like, your name's Piggy. Piggy, That's bananas. And then this poor kid like never had a name. But Ralph liked him. Like They had that connection that they wouldn't have had like off the island because Ralph was like a popular boy. It's true. But but that still goes to show that those we can't escape the shittiness. We can't escape the shittiness of what it means to be human. You can fall into a deserted island and try again, and it won't work. It doesn't work. And I think, I think that you going into it so hopeful about humanity kind of protected you from it a little bit. Because I didn't feel protected from humanity when when I went in. I went in already suspicious and already scared and already anxious and already pessimistic. And all it did was fan those flames. Yeah, you know that I'm still a very hopeful. Like, I don't know why or how the hell this happened, but I'm still a very hopeful person. Um, It's just like my weird... I'm like cynical, but also deep inside just Mm -hmm. consistently have been hopeful my whole life. So Golding challenging that, I was like, no, shut up. And I think that's why I shut that book out. Maybe. Um, Maybe. But also at the same time, I also want to say like, would would he be able, would he have been able to make such a good point if he had put adults on this island? No, absolutely not. Because what it showed was because they're children, you suspect them of innocence. Right? So he yeah, those kids were innocent. Jack spoke once and I was like, you're crazy. Sorry, but, I don't mean to use that word. <laughs> uh, I know. But that's the point. That's the point. Even children who are supposed to be innocent, who are supposed to be pure, even they are corrupt because the corruption is not a matter of society. The corruption is a matter of inherent fact. But these children were in society and have a lot of learned behaviors from the adults back in England. You could argue that. Absolutely. But you could also argue that you could stick babies on an island and they'd just die. No, I know. So there's no real way to do this test because if you put a baby on the island, this becomes the jungle book. Exactly. Exactly. There isn't a real way to do this test. And the closest that he could come to representing that even the purest of society would continue to fuck it up was this. Okay. You know what? I I, I disagree with William Golding, but I see your analysis and I accept it. So thank you. I appreciate it very much. We see, see, see listeners. We don't always agree. (laughs) 
No, I mean, we. I think we disagreed on Lord of the Flies from the mm-hmm. get-go, because oh, I was right. like, no, and you were like, yes. yes. And I, I made... We made it very clear what our stance on Lord of the Flies was. Oh, absolutely. There was never any doubt there. No. Your turn. Okay. Uh, yeah, very hot take on Lord of the Flies. Thank you. Now I have <laughs> to think about the fact that Ralph has Piggy's glasses. Oh. So, it's so sad. Okay. For me, around the same time of Lord of the Flies, I guess I was also reading The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And this book... This book is devastating, Mm -hmm. but this book is hopeful. And I think that's why I think that's why it spoke to me. Because there there is something devastating about everything Celie goes through. But the end is so hopeful that it felt like a bomb to my soul. Every you know, I don't think hmm. I've read the color purple probably eight times. And I always find something new in it. But every single time I get to the end, it feels like a homecoming. It does. And actually, like, I pulled up the quote from the end because – so there was a time in 11th grade. Yes. No. When did we read Henry IV? 12th grade? 12. 12th grade. Mm -hmm. I only know – I can only, like, map out by Shakespeare. That's pretty much it. That's where (laughs) I've gotten now. So in 12th grade – once we put all the English classes together in the classroom that was near that big um, walkway that led to the library. Do you remember mm-hmm. that circular walkway where you could look down into the administration? Yes. There was a classroom um, kind of like at the beginning of that circular walkway thing. And we all piled in there and they had asked us to talk about our favorite books. Yes. And you can, you, we already know whose idea this was. Obviously it was our exceptional English teacher who probably was like, I want to hear about this. Yep. Um, you and I, uh, were very much into this because it was up our alley. Mm-hmm. And, um, I talked about the color purple and I remember reading it, reading the last line, and the last line is, I feel a little peculiar around the children. For one thing, they groan. And I see they think me and Nettie and Suge and Albert and Samuel and Harpo and Sophia and Jack and Odessa real old and don't know much what's going on. But I don't think us feel old at all. I'm so happy. Matter of fact, I think this is the youngest us ever felt. And then she writes, Amen. And I remember reading that for the first time, and I was like, "This is this is life." Are you crying? <laughs> she cried so easily, guys. It's it's literally not my narration. It's just the it's essence of the color so purple. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that's where I stand because at the end of struggle, I have to believe in hope or I begin to crumble a little bit. So I don't have that like suspicion and cynicism that you have because in my mind, I'm like. It will end on a hopeful note, or so help me God. Um, and I remember reading that out loud to the class, and you were losing your shit. That's fine. That was expected. But no one else blinked, and everyone was just like, I don't get it. And I was like, it's oh. the hope. It's the struggle and the hope. It's, it's That same the, day. It's You Sorry. know what? Yes, struggle and hope, but also the promise of reward. The promise of reward and in the color purple, not so much about love externally, but loving yourself despite all that has been said and done to you. Yes. Um, Also very, very important to note, we were not taught anything about the history of Black Americans or Black Canadians 
or um, the colonization of Africa or countries within it. We were not taught about Black people. And I honestly hate to say this because it fills me with shame and embarrassment, Mm -hmm. but I never met a Black person until I moved to Canada. Um, same, actually. Yeah. 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 but I mean, there's not. That's not for you to be ashamed about. This is the nature of living in Abu Dhabi at the time we did. I know, I know, um, I know. Um, so the color purple was really because I think I lent you the color purple after did. because I was into it. You so did. I think this was like a real introduction to us. It, for one thing, it is a book written by a black woman, and we had not yes. been exposed to that before. Never. So this was a black voice, mm-hmm. and it was a story about black characters, mm-hmm. and there were white characters. Mm-hmm. And you and you you saw you saw what the dynamic was. Yes, you know, it was I think it was our first foray into a legitimate education um, about kind of American uh, and colonial history. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Shall we do the next book? Sure. Okay, so my next one is actually our first bonus. Nice. And it is Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. Yes. Oh, my God. I love Frank McCourt so much. Do you want to hear the book? Yeah. I hear it. Oh, my God. Is that the one with like the it's like a black and white um, picture on the cover? Uh, No. So it's a little bit tan and it's a picture of two boys walking arm in arm. Yes, I know that cover. My God, this book. We both loved this book. You lent it to me. In fact, um, you loaned me most of the books that are on this list. Yeah, I I read Frank McCourt because my older sister had a copy of Teacher Man um, on her shelf. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And I read Teacher Man. And I was like, this is fantastic. And I actually went backwards. I read Teacher Man, I read Tiz, and then I read Angela's Ashes. I had I no idea. Because mm. Teacher Man was hysterical. Teacher Man was hysterical, and Teacher Man made me feel like maybe education was a field I was interested in. Yeah, because Frank McCourt was all in on it. Completely. Completely, like his dedication to those kids. Stop. <laughs> the sandwich story alone. Oh my God. He's okay. So, when the principal, the principal, when the principal peeked through the window and was like, Why are you eating a sandwich during class? And Frank McCourt's like, This kid threw his sandwich around, so I ate it. And the kid's <laughs> like, Yeah, he ate, he ate the sandwich. My mom made that sandwich. And Frank McCourt's like, It's good. And the kid's <laughs> like, I'm going to tell my mom that, sir. Oh, it's cute. Yes. Oh, that's so cute. I didn't remember that. Yeah, the sandwich story is like a big teacher man thing for me. So I'm going to read the acknowledgments in Angela's Ashes. And I, okay, so here's why this book was so crucial to who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. Angela's Ashes was the first immigration story I read. Mm. And while it wasn't the story of a Middle Eastern immigrant or maybe a now what is now more traditionally associated with being an immigrant, um, the experience was very much the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the first time that I saw 
immigration as something that was a traumatic incident, that that it was something that was a big change. Because prior to that, I was like, yeah, I don't belong anywhere. You can put me anywhere and I'd be fine. And this made Mm -hmm. me realize that that's that's just simply not the case. Yeah. Um, So truly very beautiful. Also, 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 and I'm going to read the acknowledgments because this is another reason this book is so important to me. Mm -hmm. This is a small hymn to an exaltation of women. Raleen Dahlberg fanned the embers. Lisa Schwartzbaum read early pages and encouraged me. Mary Breasted Smith, elegant novelist herself, read the first third and passed it on to Molly Friedrich, who became my agent and thought and thought that Nan Graham, editor-in-chief at Scribner, would be just the right person to put the book on the road. And Molly was right. My daughter Maggie has shown me how life can be a grand adventure, while exquisite moments with my granddaughter Chiara have helped me recall a small child's wonder. My wife Ellen listened while I read and cheered me to the final page. I am blessed among men. Yeah, way to point out all the women, and not in a gross way to call them your muses, to just outright say the work they did. That was, I had never seen anything like that. And yes, it's a white dude who wrote this, but but it's not about him. This first book, Angela's Ashes, it's not about him. It's about his mom. It's about his mother. It's about an abusive household. It is about it, childhood and growing up and being out of place. And it is a, a Bildungsroman, however you pronounce it. But it's also an ode to a mother who raised them against all odds. Yeah. And that's the thing. The The hook in this book is Angela. Yes. 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 It's it not is. Frank. No. Or his or his funny little brothers. It's it's Angela and it's the children she lost and the abusive husband she had and what she used to do to make sure they were going to eat that night. Exactly. Exactly. For me, this book actually um, influenced the way I write sometimes. Sometimes I write things and I'll be like, this is the Frank McCourt in me coming out because he had this delightful way about just writing something miserable mm-hmm. in a funny way. He did. He really, really did. But without taking away from the seriousness of it. Exactly. This is so serious. But the way he's looking at it now, in hindsight, he can make a little joke. And the the hopefulness of yeah. being in a place in your life where something so tragic um, c- can have an injection of humor. Exactly. And that's the thing with Frank McCourt. All of his work is like unwaveringly hopeful constantly it is it really he he moves to the united states and has nothing he's still hopeful he struggles to be a teacher and to and to get his job done he's still hopeful he never stops he never stops he was in his 60s and wrote a trilogy of memoirs and won a pulitzer prize and just (sighs) it's never too late Rest in peace, Frank McCourt. Rest in peace. Um, when he died, we were still in high school. We were both devastated. Deeply. Um, but what Frank McCourt is telling you is it's never too late to write, to tell your story, to just put it on paper. Because I think there's that thought, like, I'm too old. Frank McCourt never thought he was too old for anything. And he never was. He never was. Because he knew that that was just, like, a state of mind, to be honest. Yep. But yeah, um, so Angela's Ashes, 
Tiz and uh, Teacher Man is the trilogy of memoirs written by Frank McCourt, an Irish-American immigrant. And they are fantastic. And if you guys haven't read them, I they're actually very easy reads. Really easy reads. You'll just fly through them. You fly through them. He uses really simple language, but like his mastery of the craft is so strong that it mm-hmm. makes an excellent story. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. It's also written quite frankly. Um, there is some lyricism and romanticism to the writing, but it's not flowery or overdone. It's quite no. honest and... Frank. <laughs> this is a better Hemingway. Let me put it this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is yes. a superior take on Hemingway's dedication to telling the truth with every word. Yes. Because Frank McCourt is truthful in his writing and he Very. tells you things that make him look like shit. A hundred percent. Yeah. So excellent. He's just an excellent writer. He is. So that was our bonus because we both wanted it on our list yeah. because it's mm-hmm. crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, your turn. I'm going to talk about Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which is just like, isn't that the book on everyone's list? But I can't believe it wasn't on mine. When you mentioned it, I was like, oh, I fucked up somewhere. Pride and Prejudice for me was like an experience because I had read a lot of books, but it's hard to see yourself in in the books I was reading. Like I was reading Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I read a lot of like the great American and British novelists. Yep. And I wasn't part of that world. No. Nope. You know, they did they didn't make it easy for me to access. Did you ever feel envy? I felt envy. I felt envy when I read Hemingway because I wanted to be at Shakespeare and Company sitting next to James Joyce and F. Scott Fitzgerald and watching Hemingway yell at Ford Madox Ford. Like I I wanted that life, right? Me at too. Shakespeare and Company with the greats. Yep. Um, and like Hemingway said, that was the way it was in Paris when they were all very young and very happy. So <sighs> that's also a devastating last line. I thought about putting a movable feast on this, but I thought uh, Jane Austen deserved it a little bit more because she does. In terms, in terms of like wanting to be seen, mm-hmm. I saw myself in Pride and Prejudice because I had never seen a character like Elizabeth, not even in the historical romances I had read, because this was really around the time where, you know, the very soft English rose or like the whimpering, not a tough girl. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, I, mm-hmm. and I was a tough girl. Like, I'm still a tough girl. I say mm-hmm. what I mean and I mean what I say. Um, and I don't hold back for the sake of the feeling, like any man's feelings, because I don't, they don't extend that courtesy to us. Yeah, 100%. Um, so when I read Pride and Prejudice and I saw Elizabeth, my God, I saw myself and I was like, yep. oh my God. But it's not only that, I saw a character like myself who got everything she wanted without having to change. Um, So crucial. And I was told my whole life, you need to be softer. You need to be more soft-spoken. You're too mean. You're too straightforward. You're bitter. You're cold. Whatever whatever you want to be told. Because none of those things describe you at all. Exactly. Which is why I planned an episode about how we were perceived. Um, But but the (laughs) thing is, they didn't describe me, but I carried that to therapy. And I sat down and I said, I think I'm a bad person. I don't want to be, though. And my therapist was like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) I it upsets me so deeply that you were ever allowed to feel like a bad person. You're one of the best people I know. Thank you. You're also one of the best people I know. Um, (laughs) 
Oh my God. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice for me though was was about seeing myself. And I know a lot of people see themselves in Elizabeth, but I actually love that. I don't feel like gatekeepy about her because like she should be here for all of us girls. Yeah. She should. She is an amazing person for us to look up to. And yes. You know, I've heard people be like, no, like Elizabeth is like only this person represents Elizabeth. And I was just like, oh, my God, Elizabeth can be all of us calm down. And actually, yeah. one of the nicest compliments I got ever was from you, because we were once talking about whether or not we thought the characters in Pride and Prejudice were realistic. And we were saying Darcy wasn't for multiple reasons. Right. Um, and then we moved on to Elizabeth and you, without a beat, you just said, oh, I used to think she wasn't realistic, but then I met you. And that was just so <laughs> casual for you to say. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I still it's like still hold that in true. me. It's still true. Yeah. Honestly, so it is. Which, which, which actually gives me a, which helped me in my journey of finding a better sense of myself outside of who I was told I was because I was like, I love Elizabeth and I love everything about her. Maybe we are actually alike and I wasn't just projecting onto her. You are. But hang on. There's another really important thing that I want to mention about Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And that is that we saw in Jane Austen um, legitimate to society ways of finding a partner. Oh, yeah. Right? Because we weren't allowed to date. We weren't allowed mm -hmm. to like, I don't know. I wasn't allowed to date. No, none um, of us were. We weren't allowed to canoodle. Right. And I was told that I wouldn't be allowed to date until after I had, you know, hung my PhD on the wall. Mm -hmm. Which, PhD, where are you at? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, funny. Right. So, like, more contemporary romance being like, Oh, they started dating when they were 16. It was unrelatable. We didn't. Very. So here's the thing. I love historicals, right? I like live and die for them. And it's because even now, it's what I relate to the most. Because I was like, mm, those shackles that you're feeling, girl, I grew up with them for yes. real. Yes, for absolutely. Real. The propriety, the shame, all of that. The restriction. Mm-hmm. And the mm -hmm. thing is, we, we can leave the Middle East, but the Middle East can't leave us. And it creeps up and it bothers oh us. Yeah, it does. So it for does. Jane Austen to be like, hey, in this oppressive system, you can still find your way. It can be yours. Yes. And I was like, oh, my God. Yes, Jane. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. And thank you for writing someone who wasn't sweet and flawless. Elizabeth is stubborn and she says what she, whatever she wants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she she's very, you know, she rejects men. Mr. Collins, she's like, I'm not going to marry Mr. Collins. Fuck all of y'all. Right. Well, like she just fuck Mr. Collins. He was a little creepy. Shoo shoo. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's a whole mess, but she was just like, no, no, like, that's the thing. The answer is no, and she, you know, it's not like her age is disclosed, but she's not young either. Oh, yeah, she's a spinster, isn't she? Well, you know, she's not young either, and she's not, because she has, she has three younger sisters. Yep. And they're all out in society at the same time. So basically what I'm saying is, I have never had the privilege of having the patronage and condescension of Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and it shows. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome.
Okay, you go. Okay, um, my next one is Running with Scissors by Augustine Burroughs. Oh, we both read this. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if you gave me this one or if I gave it to you. I don't but remember. I suspect, I suspect you gave it to me. We both read it, though. That I know. Yes, and here's why this book was so special. This was the first time that I ever interacted with a homosexual person. Hmm. That's right? tough. That we know right? of. That we know of, of course, of course, of course. Um, but it wasn't so much that homosexuality was rejected as that it was non-existent. We did not talk about it and we were not taught about it. Um, in fact, until the literature found me, I did not know about it. It's not something that is really on the forefront of the mind of an Arab woman. Um, no, and I think in our school particularly, it was just not ever discussed. Well, think about the books that they chose for us to read in school and think about how much of it and how we never discussed homoerotic subtext. But God knows I love to stick my hand up in the air in every class. In every classroom I've been in since, I put my hand up. I'm like, are we sure these men aren't in love? Yeah, no, never sure. We're never sure. We're um, never sure. No, but this this was the first time that I kind of had access to. And again, this is a memoir by Augustine Burroughs. Um, I had access to the kind of world that I simply didn't know existed. Mm. Um, his mother um, is bipolar, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. his And now I think that Augustine Burroughs' family, I think his mother and his brother have both written books of their own. Yeah. Um, I think that his mother has been quite upset with some of the things that he's written. Um, mm -hmm. She feels misrepresented by Running With Scissors specifically. Yeah. Um, and she wrote a response. And if you're interested in hearing her perspective, you could, of course, um, read her novel. It's a quick Google search. I don't remember mm -hmm. right now. It's just Augustine Burroughs' mom memoir. Yeah. Um, and his brother was diagnosed with Asperger's and actually wrote a book about um, how that diagnosis helped him and how Asperger's has made him uh, successful in his field. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So this book introduced me to, um, yeah, so Running With Scissors was the first time that I read about mental health issues, the first time that I read about um, unstable home lives, the first time that I read about a homosexual character and uh, the self-discovery and uh, exploration and sexuality. I learned so much from this book. Um, it was a huge eye-opener. And then on top of that, it is hilarious. It is twisted. It is fabulously well-written. And I'm a huge fan of Augustine Burroughs. Huge fan. It's very frank. I think a lot of, like, one of the themes of the books that we like is that they're very frank and they just say whatever they want to say. Like, yes, they don't hide it. You know, I, I'm mm -hmm. like, like, I love flowery language. And also you love Lord Byron. So we're not really ones to talk. But when exactly. sometimes we want things to be frank, especially when it's something delicate that we have never been exposed to. The best way for us to learn about it was through a very frank novelist. One hundred percent. Because the metaphor would not have worked for us. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it wouldn't have we wouldn't have caught it, I don't think. 
No, I don't think so because we there were just not enough of a foundation. Um, no, um, I, I would like to clarify that since reading the books that are on this list, I have done um, quite a lot of research. I've done a lot of growing. I've met a lot of people. Um, I've attended seminars and workshops and. I legitimately do my best to be as up-to-date as I possibly can on all social justice issues and concerns. Um, it is, please, if I say anything not quite correctly or if I don't express myself well, please let me know. I don't mean it. Just know that it doesn't come from a place of of wanting to hurt anyone. It's that we had a lot of catching up to do in a very... Um, tiny amount of time. It's very true. Um, yeah. And I think that we've done a good job catching up. I but, think so. But if we haven't, we want to yeah. learn. Just let us know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Your turn. That's okay. So here's my last official one because we have another common special mention one. Mm -hmm. My last official one, because I can't shut up about it, is measure for measure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I no. know this is, this is probably the like 500,000th time I've mentioned it on like, in like three episodes alone. <laughs> but I was really, really shaken reading this play. Like I do expect a little bit of drama and taboo from Shakespeare, but this level I had not expected. And actually it gave me a little bit of a, uh, reader slump after because I think I was supposed to read Coriolanus after and I was mm -hmm. like yeah but I can't like you peek at measure for measure then you go to Coriolanus and you're like ew <laughs> right then you go to like Pericles and Cymbeline and you're like ew <laughs> oh my god oh so god. I want to say what's super great about measure for measure and what I love about it is that the characters are very gray and I actually do want you to read it because I think it can have an episode on its own and your perspective as a teacher would be interesting about why it would be useful in the classroom oh I legitimately think, I'm gonna read it yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of things about Measure for Measure that make good conversation, um, mm -hmm. discussions of consent, power dynamics, mm -hmm. um, gender roles, you know, mm -hmm. the hierarchy um, mm -hmm. with that comes with gender. But mm -hmm. really forgetting all of that and just getting down to the two main characters, Isabella and Angelo, they're so gray. And I think that's it's very it's almost like a little bit scandalous because people say Isabella is the heroine. Angelo is the hero. no. Angelo is the villain. Look at me. I'm already slipping up. <laughs> Angelo is the villain. And right. he's the villain because he tells Isabella and he tries to do a metaphor, but eventually he just says it outright because she's like, I don't get it because I'm a nun. Um, he basically tells her her brother is in jail for um, adultery. And Isabella wants to beg for his life. Uh, Angelo's a hard ass. And he's like, nope, your brother has to die. Sorry. But when she fights him, this ignites something in him. And this is a man. Yes. This is a man who the other characters are like, his blood is like ice water. Forget it. You know, you're not going to crack mm -hmm. Angelo. But something about, so Isabella, first he's like, no, your brother's not going to like be excused. Fuck you. Um, and she turns away. But then she turns around and she's like, yeah, but what if? And he's like, what the fuck? People don't turn around and say, but what if to Angelo? Yeah. Mm hmm. 
And so he is very shaken by this. Eventually, the the plot of this is he tells Isabella, you need to have sex with me. I'll let your brother go if you don't. Corruption. Um, yes. <laughs> and and the thing is with and and yes, you're thinking like, okay, but that makes him a villain. But no, An- I'm not. But Angelo has really weird he has some really weird lines, you know? And he like this book was written like four hundred plus years ago. And mm-hmm. he's he asks things like, Well, who is at fault? The tempter or the tempted? And I'm like, okay, this is like a conversation that we were having in the two thousands. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yes. This is a conversation that is currently being had. This is the Me Too movement conversation. Yes, precisely. Separate from the shitty men who have been exposed in Me Too, Angelo has self-awareness. And so you think to yourself, one of two things can happen. Isabella can agree and she can sleep with him, which means she's a nun, though. She doesn't want to. Right. Um, She wants to be a nun. She wants to be a nun. She's a novice, though. So, like, she hasn't said her vows yet. And but she wants to be a nun, and she's she not going to wa- be a nun yes. if she bangs a- bangs it out with Angelo. Yeah. She goes to her brother. Her brother's like, that's awful. But, like, could you, though? Because I really don't want to die. And she's <laughs> like, well, fuck you, too. And I think the Angelo's on one end of the spectrum. Isabella's on the other. And they're mm-hmm. two, they're they're the same person in that way because mm-hmm. Isabella won't waver from this nun thing and Angela won't waver from this path of justice thing. So they butt heads. Yep. In yep. the butting heads, though, there is electricity and chemistry. It's so sexy. It can be. That's the thing. How do we want to put on measure for measure? There are no stage directions. And I can think of a million interesting ways to put it on. Um, hey, when we have a Patreon, would you, incredible listeners, please be so kind as to fund Shushu's production of Measure for Measure, please? And yeah, thank also you. do that because I think as a play, it's so easy to put it on in black and white. But I think what Shakespeare was actually telling us is, hey, there's no right way to deal with this problem. Because what Isabella ends up doing is that she finds Angelo's um, ex-fiance mm-hmm. and that ex-fiance goes to Angelo under the cover of night pretends to be <laughs> Isabella and sleeps with him. Oh but that's wrong. Very. Because now we have to start talking about consent. Yeah. And Shakespeare does this quite a lot with his male characters, but there's no consent there. Yeah. Isabella has also done something wrong by encouraging yeah. this. Yeah. So it and so there's no right answer. Should Isabella sleep with Angelo? No. Should Angelo be propositioning her? No. But should he be sleeping with his fiance who he dumped for reasons we don't know about? No. <laughs> there's no solution at the end of the play. At the end of the play, yeah. They expose Angelo and Angelo's like, uh these women are crazy. And everyone's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, you've already gotten yourself in this much. And he's like, okay, fine, they're right. <laughs> it was a mistake, though. And I hate myself, just so you know. And he does hate himself. Good. Good. He hates That's all himself. we want. That's all we're seeking. Yes, he hates himself. And Angelo, for the first time in this play, and we have to realize the sensitive situation he's in, Angelo has a line where he says, blood, thou art blood, to himself. For the first time, he's like, oh, shit, I'm human. That sucks. Yeah. That sucks the realization of blood thou art blood it Mm -hmm. it sucks for him it does he was a robot before this he's like this fucking sucks so at the end though 
the Duke is like, okay, Angelo, guess you have to die because you like broke the law or whatever. And Angelo's like, that's cool. I, I, I should die to be fair. Um, yeah. But the, his ex-fiance is like, no, I want to marry him. And I'm like, girl, I don't get you as a character. You just showed up out of nowhere. Yeah. So she falls to her knees and she starts to beg to the Duke. And she turns to Isabella and she's like, can you beg for his life? And you're sitting there as the reader being like, there's no fucking way. Right? But does he? She falls to her knees and begs for Angelo's life. Ooh, controversial choice. And if he didn't love her before, he He loves her then. And that fucked me up. Yeah. So measure for measure in and of itself, like it's so gray. And because the conversation is so deep and endless, it's, it just, it changed my life. Like I, like I said, I still think about it like once a month and stay up until 3am just staring at a wall being like, God damn it. Okay. We swore that we'd always be honest on this podcast. You said it happens once a month. It happens at least once a day. I mean, when I think about it. So, you know, (laughs) I have, um, you know, I have that like, um, Julius Caesar, uh, framed theater poster on my wall. Your mom hates it. My mom hates it, but I got two more for my birthday, which is coming up in December. Ooh. One of but them you're is already fun- getting birthday presents. Am I late? No, like I mean, I we ordered them early because they're from the UK. Oh, um, nice. And one of them is measure for measure, which means every time I walk into my fucking house, I'm going to see measure for measure and have a crisis every single day, like on the hour. You're going to love it. I'm going to love it because it's the best crisis to have. If you want to get into Shakespeare, please try Measure for Measure. Like, you will not regret it. It's so good. I promise to read it, and I hope that our listeners also read it. And you know what? You want to read the No Fear Shakespeare, like, Sparknotes version? Just do it or, like, listen to it. I'm sure it's free on the iTunes app store because Shakespeare is, like, public commons. So you're good. Yes, absolutely. But also, if you want to, like, go on to Audible and find some talented voice actors who will read it to you in different voices, jump on that too. Exactly. Also, so you know, Audible does give you like free trials and stuff. And I'm pretty sure you get to keep that, the books. That, they're not sponsoring us yet. Audible, please sponsor us. We <laughs> we actually are selling your books for you. Thank you. You can I go now. I also narrate for you. Like it is in my best interests for you to do well. Exactly. But you can continue. I'm done talking about measure for measure for now. And I am going to leave now. that open-ended. <laughs> All right. Um, my last book is called Green Grass, Running Water, and it is by Thomas King. It is a Canadian national bestseller. It is a uh, it is Canada Reads 2004 selection on CBC Radio. It is a finalist for the Governor General's Award for Fiction, and it was selected by Quill and Choir as one of 40 great works of Canadian fiction. Now, growing up in the UAE, I never heard of Canadian fiction. In fact, despite being a Canadian citizen throughout my entire upbringing, um, I did not know that Canadians had their own literature. I just thought we were Canada's hat. Uh, Canada's hat. America's hat. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I just thought we were America's hat. Um, And then in second year, I did an English course for my degree, and it was called Canadian Literature, and it was taught by the most amazing professor named Robert McGill, who was just honestly 
just such a great prof. He was always upbeat. He was always excited. He was clearly very, very, very passionate about the literature that he was teaching. He was invested. He was invested, involved, young, energetic. He was the most fun prof I had. And I might have had a bit of a crush on him. Uh, I can tell, but also just know that anytime anyone has taught me English, I've been a little bit in love. Not every time for me. It depends. I've had really good professors, though. I think I've like actively sought them out. Yeah, that's fair. I just I've wanted had, to get my. I've had like with. douchey. I've had like douchey humanities professors where I was like, I love this topic, but I hate you. I had douchey history professors where I was like, I love this history, but I hate you. And yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's got to be a good teacher, and then we will fall in love with you. Yeah. Fair game. Yeah, I I just hope no one falls in love with me when I teach them. That's awkward. They're already in love with you. No! Please! Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just like that. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of this book, and, you know, I've never actually thought about Canadian literature, but it really speaks You're- to how we don't talk about Canada, uh, like, Canada's indigenous population. And that is what I was going to get to, because not only is this a work of Canadian fiction, this was written by a First Nations author. Yep. And it contains very, very strong First Nations themes. It is deeply hilarious. It is so funny. It is soaked in various mythologies. It it contains very, very, very relatable characters. It's just, it's fabulous. I recommend it to absolutely everyone. And I'm planning to read it for the third time um, when I finish the book that I'm currently reading, which honestly, I have to say, I'm struggling with quite deeply. Oh, that's okay. I'm in a reading slump, if I'm going to be honest with you. Um, It's not that I'm in a slump. It's, uh, I'm reading The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, Mm -hmm. the follow-up. Okay, so to our listeners, I'll usually read a book a day. Like, like if I'm reading a book, it's probably going to be my evening activity, and then that's just what I do that evening, and then the book is finished. It's very weird for me to still be reading the same book the following day if it's less than 300 pages long. Yeah, as a reminder, she read my book in a night, and it's over 300 pages long. (laughs) Wait, it's over 300 pages long? It's like 306 pages, no? It didn't feel like that at all. I thought it was like 200 pages. Yeah, no, it it felt it felt so quick. It was phenomenal. Um, But like with the Testaments, I've been reading it for two weeks now and I can only pick it up in very small doses because then I have to like kind of drop it like it's hot and then go for self-care. But that's what Margaret does, though, right? She's a big fan of just putting it all out into the open. Yeah, but in a very... Here's the thing. I was actually speaking with someone um, kind of recently who was like, oh, but like nonfiction is so much worse. This was actually on a Facebook comment. Right. And someone said, but like not like you want to see tragedy, read nonfiction, Mm. read about like actual, um, you know, tragedies that are occurring. Mm -hmm. And yes, 100 percent true. But somehow there is something about the metaphor, something about the hyperbole that is more visceral of an emotional response. Yeah, I understand. And you know what? I don't agree with that, that you have to read about real life tragedies. 
I think you do. I don't think you have to exclusively read about real life. No. Yeah, I think I think if you want to read about Okay, here's the thing. Fiction is typically a commentary on real life tragedies. So yep. so what you're The Handmaid's Tale um universe is a commentary. Mhm. And it's yes, it it's is. speaking to real life issues. So I I don't know right. I don't know about that rule that you should like, you know, we all read the news, but I'm definitely not going to read like a book on World War II unless I really wanted to, you know? And that's where my argument is, because you could read The Book Thief, which is a um, fiction and it's a commentary on the Holocaust through the eyes of a child um, using child's eye view narration. A lovely book, very sweet. Uh, but you don't get enough of an understanding of the book. Or of the history without reading both. You should know both. You should know both, but I don't think both of them have to be in novel or book form. Oh, absolutely. No. Mm. Find out however you need to find out. Be informed however you need to be informed. Um, But definitely know where the fiction is coming from. Know what real life events or tragedies transpired to uh, make the work of fiction or the content you're consuming mm-hmm. exists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a good that's a good book that that changed you. I like it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely stunning. It's Thomas King, Green Grass, Running Water, Canadian Lit. Uh pick it up if you're interested in indigenous literature. It's beautiful. Um this is a really good time for me to um, throughout my top criticism about Canadian politics is that so very often Canada is glamorized because people are obsessed with comparing it to the United States. And I have mm-hmm. problems with this for multiple reasons because when you just couple Americans under one umbrella term such as uh, stupid, um, mm-hmm. you are ignoring all of the work that's being done by the people of color and the progressives and all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. But also you're ignoring the problems that are happening on Canadian soil, particularly with the indigenous population. So this is just a PSA. If the only way you can lift up your country is by comparing it to the United States, please check yourself. Here's my pro tip. Let's roast all countries. They deserve it. It's time for socialism. Should we move on to our last bonus book? Um, yeah, please. Our last bonus book is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, which we read in 12th grade. Yeah. This book is really emotional and personal for me. I, okay, I love this book very, very, very much for many reasons. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because what, because of what it meant to us. So Mm. please tell us why it's so personal. Elizabeth Bennett is the spunkiness in me, I guess. Hang on. Yes. Backtrack. Mm-hmm. Jane Eyre. No, I know. I'm leading into this. Oh, sorry. Elizabeth sorry. Bennett is the spunkiness in me, which yes. I like. Yes. Jane yes. is the seriousness in me, which has been criticized my whole life. There we go. Mm. Because Jane is not spunky or humorous. She's smart and she's serious. And mm-hmm. She's quiet, mm-hmm. and those are not great 
qualities for you know i i've been criticized like you're so serious like it's a bad thing and it only took going to therapy where i was like but that's just who i am you know so smart serious and quiet were good things and were to be aimed for the criticism you were receiving is that you were too smart too serious too quiet so you had achieved perfection but oh 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 no no you did too much sorry yeah and it's um for me being perceived as serious was also similar to being perceived as not fun and people not wanting to be around me mm. so i i did have to go to therapy and be like and eventually have to vocalize there's nothing wrong with being serious we can't all be bouncing off the walls no we cannot yeah so also jane um is not a beautiful woman like a lot of characters tend to be right she's described as plain yeah she's plain she describes herself as plain and nothing hurts me more than that scene where she paints a picture of herself like a miniature and she paints a oh. miniature of freaking blanche ingram and compares them because what is this like instagram in the 1800s devastating it's devastating and she's like why would mr rochester love me and i'm like girl first of all raise your standards because rochester has a woman in the attic but we'll talk about that later um the woman in the attic i think is what um fucked me up the most about jane Eyre. yeah i it actually was a twist where i was like oh my whoa what like i was not anticipating that as someone who didn't know anything about jane Eyre. but mm -hmm. also so jane um so you already know this i was um, bullied in a really particular way when I was in in twelfth grade, and um, the yeah. boys just all called me Jane Eyre. Yeah, and I remember the first time it happened. Yeah, the first time it happened, I was like, "Why? Like, what are you talking about?" I was very sharp. I'm, I think I was sharper then than I was now, but it was the self defense mechanism. It was protection. I agree with, I agree um, with that because I'm a lot softer now because I'm not constantly being prodded at with a stick. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember being like, what are you talking about? Like, what? And it's like, well, if she looked like anybody, she would look like you. And that was said on purpose. Yes, it was. Because it had been a chapter where Jane had been struggling with those kind of like, um, you know, the way she looks. She struggles with it in this book. Yeah. So from, yeah. from that day onward, I was called Jane Eyre. And I just want to tell you that the guy who started this, I think you know who it is. I don't remember who started it. Would you please text the name to me? I'm going to text the name to you right now. Please. Um, I have suspicions, but not certainty. That ass! Yeah. I do want to say this is someone that Nude has punched in the face, actually. <laughs> like, she actually has punched this person in the face. So we're good. Um, oh, my God. I... um. My aggression has completely dissipated, uh, just like Shushu's sharp tongue has softened. Yeah, it's not that we're not sharp and slightly aggressive anymore. It's that we're at normal <laughs> levels, but Nude yeah. literally hit this person, like punched this person in the face once. Like I'm saying, actually, not in a fun metaphorical way, she hit him. Yeah. He was bullying someone I loved, wasn't he? He picked up someone that we liked and tossed them across the playground. Oh, yeah. And then he got a punch in the face. I remember this very, very, mm -hmm. very well. So while he was tossing our friends across the playground like a douche, <laughs> he was also calling me Jane Eyre. And all 
of the boys followed suit except for one boy who who like stood up for me god help him he got roasted for that um, our our guy friends didn't follow suit but the boy no, I'm they talking, didn't the but boy they weren't overly defensive either one was defensive and you know who i'm talking about I just texted you to confirm that I know who one was like, yeah, you're exactly right. One was like, leave her alone. Yes. He's a king among men. He, he is like, yeah. One was like, leave her alone. And they were like, Oh my God, what are you gay? Like what, what's wrong with them? Oh yes. So we did say that homosexuality did not exist. Um, it did as an insult. Yes. Not as people who had a legitimately alternative sexuality. Yeah. So I was getting defended, but I had to make peace with Jane Eyre as an adult and that I had to revisit her and be like, if I'm like you, that's okay. Yeah. Um, And because I struggled a lot with feeling ugly and I still struggle with that. I have like dysmorphia about my face. I don't know what Mm -hmm. I look like and I'm just neutral about this now. But uh, when you're a teenager, that's devastating. Um, Yes, but I do feel the need to mention that you are very beautiful. Thank you. But, you know, I don't know that I'll ever actively see that because I don't know what I look like. And I'm like a big fan of just becoming neutral about what you look like body-wise, face-wise, rather than like, because loving yourself sometimes seems like too big a ticket and a little insurmountable. Just try to work toward neutrality first. You know, we will love ourselves after, but let's work toward neutrality. You know, what has been helping me with that um, self-love thing Um, Mm. because I've had body dysmorphia kind of since the age of nine when things first started changing. Mm-hmm. Um, what started helping me a lot is kind of recognizing the value that my body adds to my life regardless mm. of its appearance. Well, it takes you from um, point A to point B. Precisely. It's a little bit difficult right now because my entire right leg is in a cast yep. and I'm watching it atrophy every day. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm having a little bit of trouble with that. But the fact that not only does my body get me from point A to point B, my body got me in a boxing fight that I lost, but, you know, I did well. Mm-hmm. My body has taken me on runs. My body is capable of doing really beautiful and wonderful things with my husband. Um, my body does so much for me, regardless of how much is packed on it or not packed on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, I mean, yeah, I think it's 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 difficult. You know, it's a difficult thing to overcome. I have body issues. Not, I would not call it dysmorphia. It's not as much as the issues I have with like my face specifically. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I still have body issues. I mean, we can't. People can't win. Is the problem yep. in this world? Yeah, you know, like the fact that I'm able to criticize my body even though I'm like in a totally socially acceptable, like my body is totally socially acceptable. The fact that I can still criticize it is bananas. It is. It is. It really is very bananas. It's so bananas. Yeah. Um, but women got the shitty end of many sticks. We did. So what, what is Jane Eyre to you though? Because for me, it's like a personal thing rooted in my like dysmorphia and personality, but what is it for you or what was it for you? We read Jane Eyre at a time when I was starting to become very concerned about my mental health. Mm. Um, Trigger warning, I guess. Um, Mental health talk. Mm. Um, 
I was becoming more actively suicidal. I was seeking um, kind of an out. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, I didn't find it and I didn't make any attempts, but the planning was on. And then there was a, and I, I use this term not to be uh, derogatory, but because it is the terminology that was used in the book. Mm -hmm. But there was a crazy woman in the attic. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it was like, I feel like I'm a crazy person. Mm -hmm. I feel like my thoughts are wrong thoughts. Mm -hmm. I feel like my feelings are not the same feelings that the people around me are having. I mm -hmm. feel like I'm having a different internal experience than the people around me. And the most similar internal experience that I had, even though we didn't see much of her internal life, was the woman in the attic. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I can see that. And it made me wonder if maybe, maybe that was my fate to deteriorate to the point that I would be trapped in an attic. Um, I would never let anyone trap you in an attic. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Um, and Mr. But Rochester can get fucked. <laughs> right, right, right. But here's the thing, too, because what, what Jane Eyre was doing, it was pitting two types of women against each other. Mm -hmm. um, too quiet and too much. Mm. And I felt like I would never win. So this wasn't a very hopeful book for me. I enjoyed it. I liked reading it. I thought it was well-written and it entertained me. But I don't think that the things it taught me were things that I wanted necessarily to learn. I um, did not feel like Jane Eyre wasn't a hopeful story for me, just so you know, even though I related to Jane. I, I completely understand, um, but it's more coming to peace with who that is. And I guess for me, that means coming to peace with certain parts of my brain that I kind of want to lock up in an attic. Yeah, and I, I totally understand that. That's, you know, that's not what I expected you would say, but it makes sense given what you were going through in high school. Mm -hmm. What were you expecting me to say? I don't know, actually, now that I think about it. I don't know. Huh. It's um, huh. gothic literature is kind of like a sticky can of worms. A little bit. A little a bit. Little I bit. mean, because for me, ultimately, I where Pride and Prejudice gave me hope, Jane Eyre was like, you got to settle. Because I feel like Mr. Rochester is settling <laughs> Maybe in his defense, Maybe. in his defense, he thought that if he put his uh, unwell wife in an asylum, that she would be yeah. tortured. He is correct in that time yeah. period. Yes, he was doing his best. I don't think that he was a bad character. I just think that it's sad that that was the best we wanted from men. Exactly. The bar is so freaking low in Jane Eyre because you either have uh, St. John or you have Mr. Rochester. And I'm like, um, why are these the only options? Yeah. Because at least in Pride and Prejudice, we have we have Mr. Collins, but we have the highly, no. we have the highly superior Darcy. We also have Bingley, though. We also have our King Bingley, who's just like easygoing and gorgeous. You know what? I've been thinking about this quite a bit like since we've been discussing books so much, would you rather, and I mean this in the most serious way. Okay. Would you rather marry Darcy or Bingley? Darcy. Really? Yeah. I'm too, really? I'm too, ser I'm too serious for Bingley. I'm serious in the way Elizabeth is serious. 
That's why I wouldn't work with Bingley. See, it's the opposite for me. I would marry Bingley. I feel like that would be a super fun relationship. Well, you both have a kind of joy, like natural joyfulness about you that Darcy and I don't have. Which is so funny because I'm the pessimist and you're the optimist. Exactly. But like in general, the way we express ourselves, I would get along better with Darcy and you. You know, it's great though, because it's not like we're fighting over men in a Regency ballroom, one, two. (laughs) We never would. We would be like, fuck this noise and leave together. So, but no, it would have to be Darcy for me. Actually, a book is coming out on November 1st that I want to pick up at The Ripped Bodice. Shout out to The Ripped Bodice, everyone. Please visit it in Culver City. Um, It's called There's Something About Darcy. And an English professor is deconstructing why Darcy is so successful as a male character. That is hot. I want to read this. Because I will link you to it. But that's the thing. He is really successful amongst women who have read Pride and Prejudice. He's one of the most popular male characters in romance. Yeah, but why? Because he's sexy. I know, but like there's there's more to it though, because there are other sexy heroes for us to talk about, but we don't. But no one has ever been as sexy as Darcy. Exactly, but that's the thing. Why do we disregard but it's it's not even like it's like different strokes for different folks doesn't apply to Darcy. He is the stroke for all folks, but why? So like actually we want to hear from you guys if you don't love Darcy. Yeah, tell us why you don't love Darcy. Because honestly, Darcy's not my favorite he- Jane Austen hero. Um, it's just not. It's really? actually it's actually Mr. Knightley from Emma. Um, oh, okay, all right. Because I like okay. a mature man. Um, okay. Yeah, and I also love Mr. Tilney from Northanger Abbey. He's a fun <laughs> one. All right. Um, but 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 there's still a special place in my heart for Darcy. You remember when I was watching Pride and Prejudice last? And yes, everybody, I do live and die for the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice. I'm not even ashamed of it. So I live and die for Kira Knightley. Well, there you go. I was like, I, and I turned to my mom. I was like, hey, Elizabeth's better than Darcy. And my mom was like, yeah, Elizabeth is miles ahead of Darcy in every possible way. And then she was just like, Darcy Hebbob, though. I was like, what? And then, Hebbub. yeah, and um, this that means he's likable. Yeah, or like well behaved, you're Hebbob. Um, and I was like, what? And that's how I unveiled that my mom's like a Darcy stan. So now I really want to know what it is about Mr. Darcy specifically that somehow is ticking a box for different types of people because we all have different tastes i have a theory okay he doesn't talk much i have a theory what he apologizes to elizabeth and changes his ways and that is the ultimate fantasy (laughs) shoo shoo you're making me blush yeah he tells elizabeth if you don't want me to talk to you again say so one word from you will silence me forever. And I'm like, a man who knows how to shut the fuck up. Oh. Yeah. A man who knows how to Darcy. shut up. Is yeah. A, yeah. I really think yeah. it's rooted in Darcy. And after that, he goes back and he's like, I fucked up by asking her to marry me despite her shitty family, which is such a douchey way of going about it. So douchey. So douchey. But we all love someone who was douchey in a way that would be inexcusable in real life. Yeah. So what's that about? I want to read I this book. I don't know. 
I do too. I'm excited about it. Yeah. I love a deconstru- I love a character deconstruction. I love a character deconstruction. Like honestly, every book I've ever read, I focus only on characters. It's so much more fun than focusing on anything else. I don't care about anything else. If you give me good characters, you could write the most bananas plots and I'd be like, okay. But the characters are chill though. You could write the most bananas plots and I'll follow you. But if your writing style is stilted, I'm going to have a hard time. Yeah, I mean, like, you want to be moderately good at the craft. To write good characters, you need to be good at the craft. So actually, my book got rejected by a publisher, everybody, and it was very devastating for me, and you'd kind of had to, like, hold my hand as I dealt with that. It was kind of devastating for me, too. I I think they missed out. um, One of the, the criticism I got, which upon reflection, this was a form letter in that it was just copy-pasted, was that yep. they couldn't connect to the characters. And I, rem- bullshit. I remember being like, fuck, because the only thing I've ever been told I was good at was characters. And it's the only thing I focus on. And I was like, shit. So that's pretty devastating. But I do love I do love characters. I love a good character. I love a character deconstruction. And I can you analyze write a good character. Thank you. But um, I don't feel like it right now. Because I actually have writer's block. I have writer's block right now. I really? Yeah, I haven't written since like chapter two of the sequel to my novel. Okay, well then when we're WhatsApping later today, I might have some things to tell you. Okay. Well, the point is that well, I think the reason I have writer's block is because in a way I'm now being hypercritical of these characters that I'm writing. Which is so unfair to them. Let them be. Let them be, but I'm also struggling because it's like I was writing a new type of character on both ends for me, right? Yeah, so I was true. like, okay, I'm now struggling with my heroine. I'm also struggling with my hero who's a douche. I love a douche hero. Why do we love a douche? See, okay, everybody listen to Faded Mates actually on yeah. Apple Podcast because they have an excellent um, episode about why we love the alpha. Mm-hmm. And it was brilliant. And also read mm-hmm. Sarah McLean's romance novels. I don't know why I would have to ever say this. You should all be reading Sarah McLean's romance novels. She's amazing. But yeah, shout out to Faded Mates who kind of inspired this podcast because they're so dynamic and, and gorgeous. Thanks, Faded Mates. Thanks, Faded Mates. Okay, we're done, I think. Um, we apologize for the slight lack of Middle Eastern flavor in this episode. But next week, we are going to be bringing you... What are we bringing them next week? We're going to be talking about the concept of being a keka. Keka! Habibti, rahin la'ilik your inner keka. Yes. So we'll translate it later, but just know, talain kekat, like literally. Kurkum talain kekat. So yeah, so we're, it's, it's going to be a lot about finding yourself, um, but really in the lens of of being, being Arab at the same thing. Uh, just being Arab at the same time and finding mm-hmm. yourself, those two things sometimes conflict in ways that I don't A little love. bit. Yeah. No, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And that's that's the point of this podcast is to be uncomfortable and annoying. So come get uncomfortable with us and uh, don't tell Baba. Yeah, don't tell Baba. Like we've said this so many times. So our music, because I I will keep saying this until until you all go give like... Ahmad. Ahmad. Some, um, some, what do you call it? Business? 
some business. Yeah, he needs some. He probably doesn't need business because he has like a million reviews. But if he's good at what he does, he's good at what he does. So exactly, our music is by uh, a person named Omar, and you can find them on Fiverr, F I V E R R, and his username is C H six K zero R. And our podcast is produced by News Husband Mike. So thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Omar. Thank you, Ahmad. Okay, this has been Don't Tell Baba. Don't tell your dad. Love you, Chushu. Love you, Nood. Love you all. We love you. Bye. Bye. This has been yet another episode of Don't Tell Baba. We hope you enjoyed it and hope you'll stick around for more. Our music is by Ahmad on Fiverr. His username is CH6K0R. Post-production is done by Nood's husband, Mike. Thanks, Ahmad and Mike. Thanks, Ahmed and Mike. For more shenanigans, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Bubba Pod. If you want to drop us a line, call us at 530-32-HARAM. 530-32-HARAM. 530-32-42726. See you next week. And remember, don't tell Bubba.